That's what the street sounded like Monday night in the Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood of Brooklyn. This is New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins, recording from my home after curfew in New York City. George Floyd died after a white Minneapolis police officer pressed his knee into Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes. His death came in the midst of a pandemic made worse by the same racism that took Floyd's life. The project of racial control was part of this country's founding, and historically there's been no institution more implicated in that project than the justice system. On New Thinking right now, we're asking what that justice system is going to look like when COVID-19 ends. Our guest today is Vincent Sutherland. He is the executive director of the Center on Race, Inequality, and the Law at New York University. Sutherland is a veteran of the NAACP's Legal Defense and Educational Fund. He's also a former public defender. We spoke on Friday, just hours before the Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, was charged with third-degree murder in George Floyd's death. Before we talked about COVID-19, I asked Sutherland if he would start by sharing his reaction to the death of George Floyd. You know, I I think my reaction what I saw happen to George Floyd, to seeing that officer suffocate the life out of him and, and kill him, is outrage. It's outrage that's kind of felt repeatedly when we see these incidents happen over and over and over again. And the you know, calls for justice are unmet or met with silence. You know, you feel incredible heartbreak and pain for his family, for his loved ones, for all those who cared about him, for that community. But the reality is that that pain, that heartbreak, that suffering, it just feels like unending and unyielding. You know, police in this country have had a long history of abusing, harming, and killing people of color, and particularly black people. I think there's so many tragic things about the whole incident. Among the the most tragic is that as as George Floyd is screaming and struggling for his life and repeatedly telling the officer that he can't breathe, that he just has his knee in his neck for nine minutes, George Floyd doesn't swear at the officer, doesn't call him out of his name. As a matter of fact, a couple of times he says, officer, calls him sir, pleading and begging. And, and this police officer just ignores those pleas. And you see bystanders and people start to gather around and they see the same thing happening and they all recognize what's happening. They all recognize life is being choked out of this, this man. And they're all telling him to stop and this officer kind of just ignores those calls. And to do it in broad daylight in public is the very essence of why lynchings would happen in broad daylight in public. It's sending a message to everyone in that community that your life, if you're black, and you're accused of a crime or thought to have an interaction with the police that would give rise to the accusation of a crime. But your life doesn't matter and that we can take it whenever we want. That traumatizes everyone. And that's unacceptable. It's unacceptable in, in a country that claims to have ideals written into its founding documents that talk about the protection of, of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And the gap between those ideals and what we see every day, that gulf is, is monumental. And I think it's up to us, to all of us, 
to try and bridge that divide because this is baked into the American soul. It's baked into the American psyche. It's part of who we are as a country. And we need to confront that, confront that head on um, as part of that process of bringing our ideals in line with the way in which we actually live. Yeah, I came across a really powerful quote from uh, Ida B. Wells uh, the other day, the great anti-lynching activist uh, who said in the 19th century said, you know, change is not going to come and justice is not going to come until we, we all demand it. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, this is a problem that, that we all bear the burden of. I know that Sean Eiffel has talked about this before, the president and director of council of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, about racism being in many ways a national security threat. It is literally a force that is tearing this country apart at the seams. Our failures and policy choices, our rampant denial of our legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and mass incarceration and the racialized nature of all those institutions and the terror that came with all those institutions, we continue to go down that road at our own peril. Um, the types of disparities we see in, in every vector of American life and the type of outrage, um, and the very right, rightful and righteous outrage and that we see from communities that have been victimized and brutalized by these institutions and systems of oppression and corporations that are kind of profiting off of the backs of their livelihood and well-being. And so we have a lot of work to do, and, and I think it's up to all of us to take uh, on a piece of that work and shoulder that burden. Now, I, I don't want to be, um, you know, accused of trying to look for glimmers of hope in, in really what can a, appear to be a pretty pitch-black night right now, but do you see uh, any reasons for a little more optimism right now, I guess, in the sense that the officers have been fired, and that itself is a departure from standard operating procedure. We've also seen police departments and chiefs across the country denouncing uh, what happened. Do you see that as, as progress, or is it just a response, evidence of a response that's been forced to adapt because the video in, in this case is, is so stark? So, you know, I, I do see it as, as progress. I think part of the fact that the, that, that response has been forced upon police departments and forced upon police chiefs and forced upon this particular police department is in some ways progress as well. I think we would have been hard pressed to see that type of reaction, but for the activism that's, that took place in 2014, 2015, the rise of the black lives matter movement, all the advocacy and, and efforts has that's been targeted at legislative reform so it does give me some measure of hope about what's possible. It tells me that the change that we seek is something that we can push for just using the power of our voices and the power of protest and the power of confronting these systems of harm and oppression. And I think officers and law enforcement understand just how tragic and how terrible this incident is, particularly for probably the average police officer who goes to work and, and says that he or she wants to do the right thing and serve their community and needs to rely on the relationships in that community to help ensure that everyone is safe and getting treated in the way that they should be treated. 
has also got to be disciplined and know that it's not just a few bad apples, so to speak. And so I think there's real impetus on their part to speak out when they see the fellow officers doing that. So in response to you know what happened to George Floyd and and others, uh, you're hearing more calls now for uh, defunding the police. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of reason to see that happening. And in fact, if if we start looking at how the justice system is responding to COVID-19 in a couple of major cities, uh, New York and L.A., uh, that have released budgets during the pandemic, we're seeing very minimal cuts to law enforcement but many other cuts to lots of other places, right? Because we're in straightened um, circumstances. It demonstrates to me that we have learned absolutely nothing from the ramifications and manifestations of the depths of racial inequality that we've seen in this country that have not only been exposed by what happened to George Floyd and his murder, but also by the rapid spread of death and disease from COVID-19 and the, and the disproportionate impact that that has on black and brown people. You think about New York City, which is facing, you know, anywhere in the range of a $10 billion shortfall. And looking at that dynamic and looking at the way in which, you know, people have been failed by so many institutions throughout their lives, been failed by their schools, by, been failed by employers, been failed by healthcare systems, by elected officials. And our responses to those failures have, have been ramping up law enforcement, building more jails, building more prisons, and locking people away. And we know that those responses have actually have done absolutely nothing to improve the safety, health, welfare, and viability of these communities. And then we just go, go back and do more of the same. It just, it just, it's mind-boggling. The budget proposal itself is literally a blueprint for a community-to-prison pipeline. We are actually building up and scaling up the architecture of a incarceratory state and doing that by cutting all the services we need that people need to avoid contact with law enforcement, to avoid going down the road of engaging in criminal activity and stepping up all the tools in the toolbox to hammer people and to flood communities with police and just deepen the rift of animosity and anxiety and outrage that that people feel um, when they think about the criminal legal system in America and particularly in New York City. To me, the budget is is an incredible disgrace. We know the solution to these problems is, is to invest in people and invest in communities. Cutting those investments just doesn't make any sense. So why don't we just talk a little bit about the changes that we're seeing from the justice system or not in response to COVID-19. Is there somewhere that you've seen the system changing in response to the virus that uh, you find hopeful? Uh, you know, let's let's start with hopeful. So it's a mixed bag, but in some prisons and jails, I've seen an increasing number of people being released um, in response to COVID-19. New York State, I think, has been very disappointing, um, at least from the perspective of releasing people from prisons. You know, we have 43,000 people in our state prisons and only a handful of those people have been released. And the overwhelming majority of those people were, were already going to be released anyways because they were released because they were, they were within 90 days of the expiration of their sentence. 
um, and had some other medical challenge and are 55 and older and, and were convicted of nonviolent offenses. So it's a relative drop in the bucket, so to speak, when we think about who's actually facing this virus, who's, who's susceptible to it, and the danger of it spreading and, and the lethality of it in prisons. But I do think that's one space where at least we've seen across the country a response by governors and by people in positions of authority and power um, to try and reduce somewhat these populations. So I think that's that's one piece that gives me some hope when we think about the justice system. I think the other piece that gives me some hope is that I feel like there's, while we're all kind of quarantined in our houses, it does seem to have been at least a reduction in the number of arrests and the number of interactions between police and communities. And so I think that, to me, um, at least says that we may not need to have police. We certainly don't need to have police kind of flooding every neighborhood and serving as kind of an occupying force in communities. So I think there's there's value in that that response as well. And and then where is somewhere that where you see the system most obviously falling short in, in its response, maybe holding fast to its traditional racial patterns? Yeah, so I think, you know, I have to say, I'd have to almost say the same, in some ways, the same two spaces that I saw some hope. I, I see that that hope is kind of dashed by the fact that they haven't gone far enough at all. So as I mentioned, like our, our prisons, we know that in New York, they've tested less than 2% of the prison population to determine whether or not they have coronavirus. So we don't know kind of the rate of spread, who actually has it, but we do know that it is an incredibly um, infectious and lethal disease. And in the face of that, you know, the governor has not used his clemency power at all to release anyone from prison. Policing and law enforcement still continues to enforce social distancing rules in racially discriminatory ways. You think about 80% of the arrests for social distancing were of Black and Latinx New Yorkers. So I think some of those patterns remain the same and remain steadfast. And so I think where there is that layer of hope, um, maybe in other parts of the country, in New York, that layer of hope is somewhat dashed by what we're seeing on a day-to-day basis from from governor and from from law enforcement. And then you're somebody who thinks a lot about the intersection between technology and the justice system and a, a lot of the ways in which this machine of technology can be used against black and brown people in the system. Under COVID-19 right now, we know there's governments around the world who are using technology to track people and to track outbreaks of COVID-19 in ways that really raise some some very real privacy concerns. You know, my big fear is that as we race to find a cure for COVID-19 and we try and take measures to kind of curtail its spread, that we're going to just welcome the type of surveillance state that has always been used to abuse and harm and surveil black and brown communities. My, my real fear is that the more we turn to technology and, and we kind of already have this bias about the way in which technology operates, we presume or assume that it's neutral, we presume or assume that it doesn't see or care about race, that it's just a computer trying to figure things out. But the sad reality is that these are just additional tools and toolbox to be wielded against communities of color 
who have already been victimized and harmed by law enforcement. And you can imagine all types of ways that these types of tools of surveillance can be used in harmful, harmful ways. Think about police using kind of COVID tracing technology to try and figure out where communities are congregating, where people are. You know, we already see it, see technology like this being used um, to try and identify where people might, who are, who are undocumented, might be residing or working or living and to deploy ICE and other types of law enforcement into those communities and into those areas. And so I fear this is going to be more of the same if we're not careful and thoughtful about how we actually deploy technology. You know, when I was researching your center the other day, I came across this great quote from the legal scholar and and civil rights lawyer, Derek Bell, um, about how racial patterns adapt in ways that maintain white dominance. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why that quote is so important to the work you guys do and and maybe how you might see it applying in a kind of post-COVID world. Racism is a shapeshifter. We see it kind of operate in these different forms in different ways and mutate much like a disease. That particular quote speaks to the need for creative thinking, the need to understand the way in which this institution of white supremacy kind of operates. And part of what Derek Bell was really focused on and thinking about and talking about was this vision of the world where racism is a permanent force. That is something that we cannot escape or eliminate or eradicate. And if you think about the dynamic of racism in that way, in some sense, it can be demoralizing, but in some sense, it can imbue you with a sense of hope about what are the types of tools we can come up with that will confront the challenges we face in the future. It makes kind of the need to fight that much more powerful and that much more necessary. And so I think, you know, there is like this notion that racism is a shapeshifter, that it's constantly adapting and changing, but it's our responsibility to understand what it looks like and attack it where it lies. And the law helps perpetuate that. Our political systems help perpetuate that. And the structures and institutions that govern us um, help perpetuate that. But that's all part of the work that we have to do in order to, to try and challenge the inequity we see in our world. Well, Vincent, I, I want to thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to join me today and, uh, and, and also for uh, the work of your center. So thanks so much for being here today. Of course. Thanks. Thanks so much, Matt. Really, really good speaking with you. I really enjoyed it. And take good care and be safe and be well. That was Vincent Sutherland. He is the executive director of the Center on Race, Inequality, and the Law at New York University. For more information about today's episode, click the link in your show notes or go to courtinnovation.org slash newthinking. Today's episode was edited and produced by me, Sami Hamia is our Director of Design. Emma Dayton is our VP of Outreach. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. And our show's founder is Rob Wolf. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening, and stay safe. <laughs>